In this episode, I speak with Dr. David Min, an oncologist that has special meaning in my life for how his personal touch and realness with me solved a mysterious neurological condition that took me to over 40 medical visits with more than 12 specialists. I asked him where he learned to practice medicine that left room for him to show up personally the way he did with me. And I learned that his worldview was radically torn down by the day he rushed to ground zero on 9-11. He said, Dave, there's something happened downtown. Uh, you need to go help the emergency crew down there. And tried to save firefighters that were seriously injured. He was burned and I was about to intubate him. And he said, well, doc, I think I'm, I'm not going to make it. Uh, and I just got engaged and I want to call my, uh, my fiance let her know that uh, you know it's been good and he wanted to say goodbye so I gave him my phone and and I tubed him and after that uh, um, he passed away in about a couple of hours and I came home I slept like a baby no problem back to my rotations and I was doing um, ICU rotation about three months out I was rounding and I started crying all of a sudden how he couldn't find the true meaning of his life until he was broken, despite having success by the world's standards. He shares about how his Korean family inherited a sense of fear of failing, so they were taught to always aim far higher than you actually need to get. Ever since I was um, little, probably nine years, ten years, we always had a family quiet time. And it, it was at 4.30 a.m but how crushing this weight was to his soul. His oncology practice was struggling to be profitable until he let go of these pressures and decided to show up for people. Today, he's pioneered a system that not only is profitable, but provides free cancer treatment to the uninsured. And he has a message that anyone touched by the shadow of cancer needs to hear. Number one, don't be afraid. Even though it's the world feels like it's all falling down on, I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. This is my first episode of The Soul of Life, and I chose to speak with Dr. David Min. He is an oncologist hematologist that had a huge impact on my life because he broke through my denial that I had symptoms of depression. Now, I had seen David, Dr. Min, actually, if you look him up, it's Frederick Min. He goes by David. I had seen him in month number one of my diagnosis when I first realized I had peripheral neuropathy, that's numbness in my feet, like I wasn't able to feel, the doctor, the neurologist said, hey, you, you can't feel, you don't have sensation in your feet and your hands, like objectively, they found that. It was a little scary. I was convinced, since the doctors were telling me they could find no cause for that, in addition, I had brain fog, kind of a lot of memory problems, I was convinced that it was coming from something called pernicious anemia. 
basically a vitamin B12 or B group deficiency that can cause some of these symptoms because of the way it uh, causes blood to not oxygenate fully. That's the anemia. Anyway, my everyday life was getting more and more compromised. I was dreading my work because it took so much effort just to do simple things. But I was like, this isn't depression. There's no way you can call this depression because I, I performed. I pushed myself athletically. I doubled down. I mean, I was doubling down on coffee as well, tripling down probably, which had zero effect, by the way. I was pushing through it. I was still performing, and I was thinking there's no way that you can be depressed and be functioning the way I am. I didn't feel depressed at all. I figured, well, if it is maybe in the family of depression it must be some some it must be caused from you know some some smoking gun there, there's got to be something causing it like leaky gut or celiac disease or mold exposure lactose intolerance i mean the list goes on and on i, I won't go into all of it with you but it was when i was about to hire a mold inspector to come to my house that i kind of realized, okay, I'm going out on the fringe here because he started telling me about his, what I'm just going to call radio frequency conspiracy theory, RF causing all sorts of somatic problems, for which, by the way, I couldn't find any scientific basis. Um, I began to wonder, am I going to be wearing tinfoil hat on my head and wandering the streets? So... I walk into Dr. Min's office. My first visit, he says, Hey, the tests look okay. No sign of cancer. This sounds like classic burnout, classic stress-related depression. And he tells me, look, the body just starts confer- conserving energy. It's, it, that's what depression is. It's not anything about... I mean, we think of it as sadness. We think of it as these things that basically you never want to think of yourself as when in fact it's really just the brain saying hey i've got to conserve energy because i'm in stress mode so much so as a result when you do little things simple tasks it's going to feel like they're mountains you're moving around that's what depression is to the brain well i ignored him got him to go down another path with me and he started injecting me with b12 because you can't really overdose on b12 it's pretty harmless to get too much But eventually, Dr. Min said, no more, no more injections. So, you know, I found another doc and and found a doctor somewhere else that would let me self-inject. I kind of felt like a junkie, but I didn't have a choice. Every day was a struggle. And after all, it wasn't my idea to self-inject B12. There's this thing called the Pernicious Anemia Society in the UK. You can look it up. It sort of crusades against standard testing for B12 deficiency because they say that you can't overdose on B12 and therefore injections should be given based on symptoms, not potentially flawed blood tests, which they think are rampant. Now, I've I found no other doctors to corro- corroborate that. And so I'm continuing to do this B- B12 self-injections in my stomach every day. I can laugh about it now. It wasn't It wasn't a great place to be in. Finally, after seeing Dr. Min for three months, I went back to him. I said, can you do the test again now to see what my B12 levels are? Because there's got to be a difference now. And basically, he told me off. He, he said, you shouldn't be here. I mean, so picture this. I'm going in there to a chemo infusion center. And I'm sitting down right next to someone with metastatic stage 4 cancer to get my injection. 
something didn't feel right to me either. But it was Dr. Min who took the first step. He said, hey, you, don't come back here. No more tests. And take the Zoloft with you. Now, he had prescribed Zoloft for me three months prior to this visit. I took it with me, got the prescription filled. It sat there. This time around, after three months, three more months, by the way, and this is like month number nine or 12 of my symptoms, and six months into the carousel of doctors getting tests, but this time it finally sank in. Something about what Dr. Min did was very special. Now, after that visit, I worked closely with a colleague of mine who treated me with Zoloft and eventually a combination with Remeron, which is also called Mirtazapine which for me at least is a miracle combination, uh, to address the insomnia that paradoxically shows up sometimes when you start taking SSRIs, even though they are helping other features of your symptoms. So it's worked out really well for me. I'm in rapid remission. Within a month, I was feeling, and I'm not kidding you, like I was 20 years old. My memory was sharp. I, I thought, well, this is what it's like to be 40-something. You just lose your memory. No. I, my memory came right back. My reflexes were faster and sharper. My working memory, particularly, was was sharp. I began wondering, why the hell doesn't somebody just call these drugs performance-enhancing, right? Then all the knuckleheads like me that are afraid of uh, whatever we're afraid of by taking them, losing our edge or something, side effects, or whatever nonsense we come up with, we'll realize that, hey, your your brain is just an energy mover. That's all it does. And these medicines simply help your brain do what it wants to do, which is move energy, electricity around better. They're not like, it's not cocaine. It's not giving you something your body doesn't do. It's literally just allowing your brain to move juice. So Dr. Min was kind of special for me. I wanted to talk to him to learn more about him because if it wasn't for how he shared his own personal story, about burning out as a resident and about how matter-of-fact he was and being aggressive about using all the tools to, de- to treat depression, not just saying, well, maybe consider it, maybe go get it checked out. He said, no, you, look, this I'm calling it, you've got this. If it wasn't for that, I could be still chasing my tail on a crusade to personally convince the medical establishment that their tech is flawed. So... I'm pretty grateful for Dr. Min. It's not every day that you run into someone like him. When I was a kid, my favorite movie was George C. Scott's version of A Christmas Carol, right? I had it taped on VHS and watched it over and over and over again until I had every line memorized. There wasn't a lot on TV in our house. Now, there's other versions of this story, right? To me, nothing comes close to George C. Scott asking the ghost of Christmas future to show him some tenderness and some depth of feeling. I still watch it every year. And I swear, even though that movie was made in 1980-something, when Marley is dragging his chains through Ebenezer's bedroom... That ghost is in my living room, banging his way toward me. And I'm nine years old. Right, so it's those chains that Dr. Min talked about when he spoke on the Soul of Life show 
about his experiences running away from who he is because he was focused on achievement and success. Same for me. And by the way, he's attained a good measure of it. Just take a look at his resume. You'll see that David is one of the brightest bulbs in medicine that we have. David told me that he suffered PTSD after being at Ground Zero during 9-11, treating firefighters. That experience broke his chains. It broke down what he calls his box. And you'll hear him talk about this, this denial about being vulnerable, about needing help. And it broke the spell he had about seeing life as doing and seeing life as achieving. Before this, David didn't really want to help people that much. He was a science guy. He said he was kind of a jerk. He was definitely an introvert, and he wanted to avoid seeing patients. But he specialized in drug development. He went on to work for Novartis. And because cancer treatment is kind of a person-centered thing, he ended up having to work with people. But it wasn't until the catastrophe of 9-11 and getting PTSD that he began to open himself up to actually seeing his patients and being with them. And he talks about his arrogance and his selfishness. Now, he's got, he uses terms, he, because he's a person of the Christian faith, he uses terms like sin and selfishness. And by the way, I want to let you know something about this. You're going to hear some language from my guests. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are not. I'm not a Christian. But I'm going to be bringing people into your life, on the soul of life, that have a deep connection to their spirituality, no matter where they get it from. It doesn't matter whether you buy the Christian worldview. I mean, once a time I used to buy it, like hook, line, and sinker, I bought it all day, every day. And if you're one of those people like me that doesn't anymore, please trust me. I'm going to let my guests share their sources of faith, and I'm going to ask you to stay open to God in whatever form that may be. And if, you, and if you're a bit bristled by the way I kind of think of myself seeing through the superstition and circus act of religion, I hope you can also trust me and stay open to there being more to your soul than any religion could ever teach you. You're going to hear David and I ask a common question. When did I first start losing connection to myself, to my soul? When did my soul start to die? And there's this question, like, we don't really talk about it, but it's implicit here. When did we gain the world but lose our soul? I want to tell you that is not a scary question to ask. It's life-giving. The question is, how are you doing your life so that you're disassociating and detaching from who you really are? What are the things that caused you to have to do that and move far away from being who you really are? Because I think, after going through my experience, if you steer towards this gap of what you don't know, you end up finding your life. You find your soul. It's not something you have to go get. It's already there. It's in the gap. That's where life is. That's what's calling you and me. Having faith to steer into the unknown is where our soul is. 
So, take a breath, lean in, and steer into the darkness. You are not alone. We're there with you, David and me, and the others that I'll introduce you on this show are there with you. We're all in this with you. This is the soul of life. My guest today is Dr. David Min. He is a physician specializing in clinical hematology and oncology, which is blood chemistry related to pathology. And of course, oncology is the treatment of cancer. And he serves as the clinical professor of medicine at Georgetown University Medical School. He's been a lead investigator for cutting edge novel treatments of cancer. And his clinical expertise includes a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health, NIH, here in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Min is the recipient of numerous awards in medicine, including being named one of America's top oncologists. It's a real privilege to talk to you, Dr. Min. It's been a a few months since I've actually seen you in your office. Welcome to the soul of life. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, it's so nice to see you. When I saw you, my, I was seeing you because I had these weird neurological symptoms that were scary. They were disturbing. Um, I went to a neurologist and that was for me kind of a dead end, um, helpful in some ways, but I felt like I had to be sort of my own doctor and you were open to seeing me really, despite having no obvious signs of cancer. Um, and I was lucky to see you with, with good healthcare. You, you shared yourself with me, um, pretty early in our, in our relationship, you, you told me about going through a crisis in your life that you thought looked a little bit like mine. I wasn't really open to hearing that. I didn't really hear it. But your, um, something about your, your, your personal touch, maybe your confidence kind of eventually telling me not to come back, <laughs> kind of broke through the fog that I was, I was in, literally in this sort of mental brain fog. And, um, you know, it was a pivotal moment for me. And, and that's why I, inv- I wanted to, to speak to you today about this. And can, can you tell me a little bit about what, what, my, uh, what it was like for me showing up in your office telling you about these mysterious symptoms, asking you for injections. And, you know, I'm, you run a chemo clinic and, and you work right. with people really suffering from cancer. Yeah, correct. So when I first saw you, um, you had many different signs. As you, I was doing my residency up in New York, I was actually uh, both ACLS and ATLS certified. Because so that back then we could, the doctors, could still moonlight and make some uh, extra money. So I was moonlighting. And uh, so as you can see for medicine doctor or internal medicine doctor to be uh, certified for trauma, then um, I get extra, you know, $50 per hour or something like that. (laughs) So having said that, um, long, um, well, it's been long time now. And uh, what happened was that I, while I was done with my moonlighting shift uh, from emergency room and I was coming home and I got a page uh, from my medical director and I called him back and he said, Dave, there's something happened downtown. Uh, You need to go and um, uh, help the emergency crew down there. And I said, what happened? And he said, "Uh, World Trade Center actually is collapsing. So that was a a 9-11. And uh, they, uh, they, there, are, there are about five or six, well, there's five of us who actually went down. And we basically, I was doing all the traumas and intubations and so forth. And I remember most of them. But the thing is that one, uh, one firefighter that I really uh, remember 
is he was burned and I was about to intubate him and he said, well, doc, I think I'm, I'm not going to make it. Uh, and I just got engaged and I want to call my, you know, uh, my fiance to let her know that, uh, you know, it's been good. And he wanted to say goodbye and so wow. that she can move on. So I gave him my phone and he called and he talked to them and said, I'm not sure whether he's not sure whether he can come out of it. And I tubed him. And after that, um, he passed away in about a couple of hours. Mm. Uh, he, he had a rapid decline. And uh, so we, so it was a, that gold, we call it golden moment when they kind of shine a little bit. That's the time where he could, you know, they could do the, you know, last breath and mm-hmm. so forth. And that's what happened. And, uh, you know, think, and it ended and I came home, I slept like a baby, no problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing back to my rotations and I was doing um, ICU rotation about three months out. And all of a sudden I was rounding and I started crying all of a sudden mm. I, I was having a, I just didn't understand because I was, I'm, I'm, I may look, uh, uh, I'm actually an introvert. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I'm not very outgoing, but many people think the opposite, but I'm really more introverted guy. So I really don't show uh, too much of my emotions. Some people actually feel that I'm showing him, but I, they will, they don't know that what I'm right. really feeling. Right. So this must have been so, really out of place for you having. Oh, abs- absolutely. So, uh, so then uh, I, I talked to my director and he said, Dave, you're the last person I uh, who has this. Uh, he diagnosed as a PTSD. Yeah, and, and he actually said, "How have you been?" And basically, I um, I told him I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I have um, I had uh, headaches, which uh, did not go away, and uh, it was it was many different things which I came back and concentrate and so forth. And he said, "Well, Dave, you know." you need to be, you need to see someone. Right. So I saw the, my friend who's actually a psychiatrist and she said, well, you need to start some medicine. I said, are you kidding me? I'm not taking any medicine. This is a PTSD. I can handle it. And he said, oh, when she said is that, well, uh, you need to take this at least short course. You need to try this at least a few months and see how you do because you need to help and to get over it and also talk to psychotherapists and so forth. So uh, that's what I did. Uh, I actually took about a month off during that time. And uh, I, uh, I'm a Christian, so I talked to my pastor. I chose my pastor as a psychotherapist and I talked to him. And uh, during that time, I have realized that um, things that I did not know before about myself. And that's where I kind of realized, uh, I'm going to have to say, um, what's the purpose of my life or meaning, something like that. So uh, that's why when I saw you, I felt that... um, you may be going through a similar thing 
which where you're highly charged mm-hmm. uh, for a long period of time, and all of a sudden um, you kind of like um, start having all these weird symptoms and so forth. And I thought this could be uh, not just physics uh, or physical findings, or but also mental findings. So right. was, you have to connect those two uh, because your brain actually or mental uh, actually regulates a lot of our physical find um, physical um, findings or presentation. If we don't hit correct, and if we don't, uh, we call it psychosomatic. But um, I believe this is something that we all should. Um, recognize because if we don't take care of it then your the suffering can continue on or your disease or physical findings can continue on i mean it's 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 amazing i didn't know that about your your story um you know it's the first time i'm hearing about the 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 part about 9-11 and having that that trauma but you know it it was clear to me um you know, later this sort of became clear to me, like, you know, I, I, I reflected or shared to other people about my experience with all the doctors I went to. I went to literally about a dozen or so, maybe more doctors, over 40 different medical visits, some of them invasive surgeries. And and yours was your the, my visit with you, even though you described yourself as an introvert, there was there was a um, there was a connection, something something felt real about it. And and um that it, it makes perfect sense that, that, that you would have this experience. But I wanna ask you about maybe, to me, I use the word courage. Um, and I don't know if that makes sense to you to, to, to think of yourself that way, but that, that you know, you, maybe for you, it was just you were, you were doing what came naturally to you. But I, the other doctors I went to didn't take those risks to share about themselves and didn't, didn't open themselves up to, for that sort of touch. Um, and so I wonder about that. And I wonder um, what your sense is about, you know, um, the health field in, in particular, where, where we are focused. I mean, obviously you have to be focused on physical symptoms and, and separating the body into parts and the brain is one part of that. But really the, the brain is the body, right? Of course it is the body. The mind is inside of the brain. So it is part of the body. And so how do you... Um, what would you say to that? I guess. What, why is it that most medical providers don't seem to have this, whatever we call this, this presence or this touch, or um, what is it about practicing medicine? Um, I have to say, uh, doctoring has changed a lot past twenty years. Um, we had a lot of uh, advances in treatment. Uh, For instance, I have many metastatic stage four cancer patients. They're not dying anymore. So we have many advances in medicines and diagnosis where they're able to cope with and we're able to uh, keep them alive without hurting their quality. But during that process, we have lost um touch of healing or uh mental healing 
has been lost as a and that's mainly because um it's very insurance driven nowadays right the managed so, care right drives everything right, right? cost right. so what happens is that all the stuff that we had to put in into that few minutes that we have has to focus on medications how you're doing side effects and what the plan of care is it's like you have to cut right and, to that point correct so a lot of my mental healing or listening to and so forth um uh, is pretty much non-existent because we have to we have to cram in a lot of uh, those issues into it so that we can you know keep them safe right so that same thing with a lot of uh, neurologists, internal medicine doctors. Um, you know, I, th I believe everybody's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, so let me tell you why I always or I try to use or I try to connect with our patients. Um, I told you that it was my pastor who actually told me was my psychotherapist. And believe it or not, um, I really require some form of um, stimulus or something that has to break me so that I could open up myself um, because I was an introvert. So that opening, or I call it oscillation or vibration or something, some kind of stimulus uh, that could have been 9-11, right? That broke me, that broke my box where I had to open up and realize I have to think about myself and I was able to get out of that box and look, look at myself from outside view to see what I'm doing and what am I gonna be as a doctor and so forth. Right. Because uh, that's when I realized how um, arrogant I was and how sinful I was and how uh, obnoxious I was. Mm. Um, I, you know, I don't think any of my friends will feel that way, but I found out as myself I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm I'm such a bad person, mm, I'm such a mm. simple guy. So you so mean I never the, realized. Yeah, the the the, the experience, the, the the trauma, the the stress of right. that, the breaking you down, you're kind of describing, allowed you to become more reflective, and and you're kind of touching on kind of maybe um, shame. I think you're talking about like feeling remorse or feeling like um, right. uh, like motivated to to do something beyond or better than what you had done. Right. Yeah. So uh, if you call that as a suffering, because believe it or not, I actually decided to get into drug development because I couldn't see patients. Really? I don't know whether you saw that. Uh, yeah. Believe it or not, uh, you know, I don't share that story too much, only a few, but, you know, I, I can share it. It's not. 
So I didn't want to see patients. Mm. So I changed. I was going to go become a cardiologist at Cornell. They, you know, they, I was, I got in and everything was all set up for fellowship. And, um, my director, and I told my director, I decided not to, I don't want to see any patients and what should I do? And he actually said, why don't you go into drug development? So what's funny is that most of the drug development back then was in oncology. <laughs> 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 so when I, it's so odd. So <laughs> I went to NIH and Georgetown. They had a combined fellowship for drug development and oncology. So... I said, you know what? I'm going to do a drug development portion first. That's why I started at NIH. Mm -hmm. And then I did the oncology later. So after that, believe it or not, I went to Novartis as a medical director mm -hmm. to, make, to make drugs, right. medication. Right. So that's where I started. And then uh, I was so, actually traveling so much. And my actually, wife said, yeah. Yeah, trying to get away from people, right? Like trying to not help, not be directly involved in the suffering, maybe. Right. So that's, I actually, that incident has changed me where I did not want to see patients. Because right. I couldn't, I thought I couldn't do very well. So what brought you back? It, it was my wife, my uh, family. Mm. Uh, it was, uh, I was doing really well. Uh, got promoted twice within a year. This is crazy. Mm. But uh, what happened was I was traveling so much. So my, you know, and things didn't work out. So my wife, we all said, hey, why don't we just go back to private practice? And this practice right now, um, it was started with me and my partner. Uh, and we started it. Uh, he actually needed some help. So I called him. And he said, well, come on, you know, let's start. Yeah. So that's how I relocated in D.C. Mm -hmm. And um, believe it or not, we were suffering financially. It was, mm -hmm. we, were, we were doing really bad. And I prayed and um, I promised my partner and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be with you for the next two years. And if we don't turn around, then I think I may have to leave. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's promise. So, well, I promised him I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. But, um, and we had a lot of competition. Believe it or not, this is a very competitive market. Right. The business side and, people uh, don't really realize this, but it's, it's oh, not yeah. easy to make money necessarily. No, no. I'm. Yeah, I'm sure you know. You're very aware yourself. You, you know, it's it's not very easy. Right. And what we realized is that we actually have to change ourselves or change our thinking as a um, servant for the patients. Mm. We have to serve the patient. Mm. We're not on top of them. We're with them. with them. So caring comes at the same level. It's not hierarchical where we tell patients what to do or whichever. Mm. So once we, if we don't open up our patient's mind or have some trusting relationship or if we don't know how to listen to our patients, then we'll never really heal or help them out. So that's why um, 
bottom line is that's what really got me into got me back in seeing clinical uh, our patients and so forth. That's mm. you know that's what really got me back wow. where I, mean, I was let, able to have some courage to see patients. I mean, let let me just sort of summarize that back to you because it's I think it's so significant. I really want people to hear this that that in fact you were. You, you thought, I mean, in, in two different places in your career, David, you thought that um, it was more about doing medicine, doing um, or achieving something, or even making money, right? Which is not a bad goal to have for any of us, right? We have to make money. And, and, and it, you said, actually, it was, you weren't able to succeed with a doing mindset. You had to somehow shift and, and you, weren't, you didn't do it willingly. You actually broke down and 9-11 obviously broke lots of people down and broke our country down and that that event actually showed you that you need to be more yourself and just mm -hmm. focus on being with people and and in fact that's how you become successful financially or right? i I'm, I'm guessing I, i'm hoping the story ends well that you're doing better now <laughs> <laughs> we're doing very well uh so that's what happened um but to me to me it's not um uh, it's kind of like uh, my whole life, um, I don't know, I don't want to stereotype it, but, um, you know, I don't know whether you know any Korean patients or anybody, but we're, we're very, uh, education is the main thing when you're growing up. And I'm actually a third generation um, Christian. My grandfather was a pastor. Oh, and what's funny is that uh, he um, he actually I was born here in D.C. and he showed me I, I went back and forth and he showed me a dollar bill the U.S. dollar bill and he said the reason I like you were born in America is look at this dollar bill what does it say and it says in God we trust and he said that that's why. I like your country. That's actually what he said. <laughs> He's so funny. But he went through um, um, he went through many wars. He went through three wars already. Mm -hmm. So he knows the suffering. He's, he's kind of like uh, he was actually, you know, you know, um, who's the famous uh, psychotherapist um, was in uh, Auschwitz? Um, Victor. Victor, Victor Frankl. Frankl. Yes. Right. Yes. So Victor Frankl, he, uh, you know, he actually, I believe he sees uh, psychotherapy a little bit differently than other guys. And he was kind of like him because he went through all these wars and he said, you need to, uh, he actually raised my father um, by overestimating him hmm. so expecting more from him than he correct was. correct yeah so he was always pushing him and telling him you need to be at this level or whichever right so same way i was going i was actually a very high achiever and my folks were pushing me into it yes so that's you can see why my box has become right. full of stuff right. because you were all your life you were always pushed into that high achieving right. mode 
what we call so that, your purpose is yeah we call that sort of like the a generational burden like it's the it's the the axis of of an entire culture sometimes whether because if it's if it's a culture that went through a holocaust for example you know the axis of all of the family many of the families are going to be tilted towards that scarcity and and abuse or fear of it and and if yeah. and it shows up in the children it shows up in how the children are raised and the pressure that's put on the children <laughs> So, exactly. So, so you're saying you felt some of that from your career. Correct. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, um, so that's what happened. And that whole ground, even though uh, my base core was, you know, with your faith and everything, but I was never uh, able to go back to the true uh, meaning of my life right. until. I was actually um, broken, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. so that changed uh, quite a bit, and that's how how I was able to approach my patients. Is basically, I was able to. You have to break that box, whatever we have it inside, so that in order for us to open up and able to listen to your patients, so that they can open. Right, right. I, I'm always of the opinion. I mean, you know, you, you, you may feel some some similarity to this as somebody who, who, who handles crises in people's lives. A cancer diagnosis is certainly a crisis. Um, but people come to see me and people come to see you for kind of similar reasons. They've, they've gotten stuck in a place where they, they can't get out of it themselves. And so they're, they don't, in some ways, uh, some of them have choice and kind of come, be, you know, before they're really stuck. But um, like I was coming to you wait, like, I guess I was stuck in lots of different ways. I didn't fully realize and understand. And, uh, and you helped me kind of, you know, realize where I needed to focus, but um, it seems better if somehow people can have this realization that they have this box um, around them, this, this identity, I guess, you know, the old term we, we would say is the ego Um and in the the newer kind of psychology, where the practice that I work from is kind of we think of it as our protective parts, you know, our protective parts of our personality. They they serve a very good purpose. They do very good things sometimes, often very good things, but they can easily get out of balance. And um, what what would you say? I mean, how could how could we inspire others to to sort of look at and look at this box in their life and break down sooner? rather than waiting for a cancer diagnosis or waiting for a depression diagnosis like for example like medical students what would you say like could you could this be scripted somehow into training medical students or or doctors or caregivers somehow to encourage them what would have to happen do you think well uh, at georgetown uh we do have uh, uh sort of those type of sessions or classes and they reach out to older physicians uh, who's, uh, you know, like I get medical students where I need, I have to teach them uh, how our practices or how to achieve, but I mainly kind of, it's kind of like a mentoring program. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I believe uh, the mentoring program actually provides the best um, uh, way of exposure to uh, those students. Mm -hmm. A personal kind of touch, right? To really kind of help process maybe Absolutely. where they are at personally in their relationship to healing. Absolutely. So uh, I do share my uh, stories sometimes mm. or 
um, uh, so that, and I, you know, I have to listen to where their background is, whether they become a doctor just because they like doctor or actually, believe it or not, most of um, students that I see, they actually have a reason why they become a doctor, whether it's actually, uh, um, there was always some kind of stimulus that actually triggered that. Whether how what what whether the impact was great one or a bad one or mm -hmm. it was more of a you know it's all different, but I'm pretty sure as of doctor just like uh, how what how I went through, something will hit everybody at some point. Yeah. Right. And whether it was done before becoming a doctor or during a doctor or you know, so um, yeah so. Uh, what I try to do is I try to share my experience with them so that they don't go through what I went through or have some kind of insight where they know that they need to get some help or right. or some of the things that where we have to be out of box so that um, it doesn't take, for me, it took almost six years to come back to seeing Patients. Yeah, right. That's a long time, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, and, and I, I think you remind me of really um, how I started to reflect on, gosh, I mean, when did I first really start losing connection to myself? If I, if I, that's a, that can be a scary question, right? But like, I really wanted to think about that and wonder, it, it, it was years, you know, I started noticing the symptoms, you know, yeah. these, uh, the peripheral neuropathy and some of the, the memory loss, the symptoms were showing up. That's the tail end of this thing. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. the worst of it. But, I'm, you know, that disconnection starts, started very early on. And, you know, I, what I think I want to encourage people in, through our conversation here is to realize it's not a very scary question to ask. In fact, it's a, it's a life-giving question to ask. Uh, how how is their work or how is their life or their family in some way the role that they're playing in life disassociating them from who they are you know and and to be able to ask those questions is not it's not scary like I think I think it's it's actually helpful and, and people will find um, good answers when they ask those questions um, absolutely yeah I totally agree yeah Actually, some people have, um, most of our patients, they never ask those questions. <laughs> they have never. Because they're always in the box. Yeah. So um, so it, it's kind of like um, we're almost, our mind is kind of like uh, there's an action and then there's a response. And then time to response has become very short where, because there's, they're so in algorithm type of uh, uh, way of thinking. Right. They never been outside of that. So right. uh, same thing with our patient and doctor in, in uh, you know, relationship. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like 
hey, you know what? This doctor has to tell me the diagnosis so that they can treat me. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's kind of like that time to response, you may need some more time than to realize to get the right diagnosis. And it's, it, it takes a long um, hours of understanding before we jump into conclusion. So, right. Right. and it could be a mental issue, physical issue. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of uh, those training comes after your own experience or after seeing thousands of patients. Right, and, right. Right, right. And, and you're, you're kind of speaking for, for people who are familiar with the mindfulness literature, the way the, way the brain is able to kind of ha- you know, have the different wavelengths and modes that it's in, that you're kind of referring to the algorithmic mode as like what people would def- call the default mode uh, network, see. which is this sort of kind of default mode. It's really kind of like, really like we don't have to really be conscious doing any of that stuff. We can drive our car kind of in the default mode network. It's just sort of, we're just, you know, it's, it's routine, it's routinized. And, and yet you're speaking about almost like you're saying that life actually happens, like cures or connections. Um, um, fire and light up, not because of necessarily the routine, but from deviations in the routine or uh, exceptions or problems in the routine where you, where you start to try to realize, oh, a, a, there was a leap here something, there's a gap, something's missing. And then we steer towards that as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to stay with what I know. Um, and I, I wonder, I don't know about med- medical training per se, but you know, when you mentioned that you, that your faith is important to you in your, in your spiritual life, um, I wonder if, if that word faith has a place in, in, in scientific disciplines, right? I don't know what, what, what is the language? What do you know what I'm saying? Like talking about this idea that there is something beyond like we're the reason a scientist does an experiment is because there's some faith that, that there's something mm-hmm. to find. It's not nothing mm-hmm. out there. Um, we just don't know. So why don't we, you know, open up and find out? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I, uh, I was always, uh, brought up this way where um, you do um, I've been doing quiet time or the, it's called quiet time it's where you do the Bible verse or you meditate and pray and think about it so right. believe it or not ever since I was um, little probably nine years ten years we always had a, a family quiet time and it, it was at 4.30 a.m. Wow. <laughs> 4.30 a.m. That's ambitious. I know. But that's how strict my family was. Right. Um, and around, and we'll do every single day, except on uh, Sunday because we go to church. Because then you're in church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. So that's how my life has been uh, for a long time. So you can tell, uh, you know, how... Even my folks, they're almost 80, and they're missionaries now. Mm. So they're in Cambodia, and um, they built the first uh, music and art school, uh, the wow. university ever in Cambodia. They don't even have 
they didn't they don't even have their scores for their anthem so cambodian anthem they didn't have the scores so wow. they would actually play or you know whichever without the scores it was all oral memorized yeah exactly so my mother my mom she's a composer so she actually made the first anthem score wow. and gave it to the king. That's amazing. So you can imagine. <laughs> I know. Wow. But there are, still, there are missionaries there. Yes. And I told them, you can have a very comfortable life and you'll do fine back in Korea or States. Why did you go to Cambodia? And they said, it's because of my faith. It's because of my purpose. Mm. It's because what, uh, what God told me to do. They were like called. They felt that connection to something beyond right. that. Right. Yeah. And I really believe that people are, they're healthy. People are healthier if you have a purpose in your life. You have a, some kind of goal long-term goal or whichever that, hey, this is something that uh, is, is a comfortable place where we need to dedicate and uh, this is what I'm going to lead. Um, I'm not forcing that everybody has to be religious or whatever. Sure. But um, to me, that kind of helped because um, if we don't uh, accept or kind of like try to achieve what God has told you to do. It's kind of like, you know, before I was trying to get into med school or MD, PhD program or whichever, mm -hmm. I had to achieve this much to get to this much. So my goal was kind of here, where in the, hey, where I'm going to be a doctor or whichever. I actually have to aim high in order for me to get there. You know, as you know, it's, it's, right. it's, you'll never get to this high. You have to aim that high to get to there. <laughs> yeah. Before, it was like uh, schooling or patients or, you know, whichever clinical trials, publications, and all that stuff in my life. Doing things, yeah. Correct. And that's why I broke down. Right. Because my foundation was so weak. It was about the time, doing. Yeah. Exactly. By the time I got everything, yeah. then I realized this was not the purpose that I was doing. Right. I lost, right. I lost that first love right. when I, I wanted to be a doctor. Right. Right. So, I think uh, I truly believe my experience during that time or six years or whichever has kind of provided me what the new purpose or it was actually my first love. Yeah. But I found that first love, but it was something new for me. Right. And that's how I think uh, uh, really helped me out of this where um, – where I, I believe uh, I'm definitely at a healthier place now mentally. Physically, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> There's always work but, to uh, do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but mentally, 
uh, I'm going to have to say um, I'm a happier place where yeah. I'm not as arrogant. I'm not as selfish or whichever. Right, right. Um, our practice, uh, just to you know, just to let you know, I'm glad that I have a good partner. Now we have like ten physicians. We hire a lot, but uh, me and my partner uh, went into uh, patients without insurance. Oh wow! Tell me about that. Yeah. So what happens is that uh, Montgomery County or Maryland, we have a lot of uninsured population. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. and mainly because of the illegal immigrants or, you know, right. undocumented people. Yes. And they get sick and they'll come to hospital. Right. And certain hospitals, they won't treat them. You go to Hopkins or Maryland or Georgetown, they won't even see them. Mm-hmm. They have no insurance. They just block everything. Mm-hmm. And me and my partner, we're, we're saying, but these people have cancer. Yeah. People have leukemia. We have to do something. So uh, we do pro bono works mm-hmm. where we see the patients and we try to get the treatments through our um, you know, societies or pools or whatever we can. Fundraising? Yeah. Oh, not just fundraising. Fundraising doesn't work. They don't mm. pay. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. Because <laughs> some of those, nobody pays them. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, yeah. some of them, well, we have to go through our pools in either clinical trials or mm-hmm. certain companies where we have, hey, we'll do this and can you help us? Or, right. You know, there's a lot of those type of things. So we use all our sources to help them. It became quite a bit. So we had to write off a lot of thousands of dollars where mm-hmm. we're under. But as you know, we, we're a big organization. We have 45 oncologists. Mm. We apply mm-hmm. a lot. And what happened was they're all saying these capital, we're a capital group, and these two guys are seeing so many uninsured patients. They're bringing us down <laughs> right. in out of rates. And we kind of told them, listen, we're, we're the one who's getting hit writing off. Uh, so don't worry about it. Financially, you'll be okay. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. take the cut. And uh, as we get a lot of doctors in, thank God we were praying each time we were <laughs> getting new partners. <laughs> wow. We were praying that they don't uh, disclaim or what we've been doing in our yes. group. Yes. And thank God, they. Uh, I said, listen, you may not make as much as this because we do a certain percentage of a lot of pro bono. Mm-hmm. And thank God they all, well, some of them, they didn't like it, but they changed. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, so yeah. those are, that's kind of like our missionary work locally right. where we are able to provide that care. Right, right. So um, I think uh, that's something uh, um, I think, I really think that God or will be uh, saying, hey, David, you did a good job <laughs> because that's yeah. something that it's, it's not, it's purely out of uh, giving or love. You it's something know? bigger than you. It's, it's, it's not just about Absolutely. For you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. as you know, you don't have to be rich to give. Right. Giving is, right. is a, 
a lot um giving is at every uh level of life where you can give well so, giving usually ends up making it clear to us what we have and absolutely and, and uh, sometimes we don't realize what we have and that that at that practice of giving is is can be very therapeutic and and, ther and very spiritual um absolutely yeah, even if we absolutely. do it for the wrong reasons, sometimes it can be it can be it can be good. But you're doing things. It sounds like really for the right reasons, and 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 really helping people. And I I just appreciate your work. Is there anything that you would say to somebody who is newly diagnosed with cancer? I know we've spoken, we've spoken about my experience. I do not have cancer. I'm so grateful for that, and I cannot imagine. Um, you know, I, I'm, I dealt with depression and depression is highly treatable. That's a message I want people to hear from this, from my story. And as long as you na start naming it and calling it what it is and telling the truth about yourself, you can treat depression and you can call it whatever you want after that. But, um, you know, I, you're, you're an oncologist and a hematologist, uh, you, a specialist and a, and a drug developer as well. What would you say to somebody who is newly diagnosed with cancer, what, 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 what is it that um, you'd want them to hear? Um, I want to tell them, number one, don't be afraid. Uh, it's not the end of the world. And find a doctor that you can trust and um, be optimistic. Always be optimistic. Even um, even though it's the world feels like it's all falling down on you because of this cancer diagnosis, but I have to say you can definitely beat this. It's not it's it's a together thing. You don't have to be lonely. Um, and if you have friends, family, and your healthcare doctors and nurses they will all help you out so that you can actually beat this you can't really do and, it alone right you really need to be able to open up to people around you absolutely this. Not. Yeah, yeah absolutely not and uh i believe initially before you uh it's it's one of those action and response i told you i talked about their time to response yeah. becomes too quick and people say, oh my gosh, I'm done. I'm just going to stay home and I'm not going to get any treatment. Yeah, That's something that you need to take time before you respond or make a decision. Yeah, Always leave all the options, hear everything before you make any decisions. So um, seek out, be optimistic, and uh, eat well. <laughs> Nutrition is a key. <laughs> eat well. It really is. I know, and sleep well. Don't try not to think too much about it. Easier said than done, but that's what people like me and you are here to help for, and uh, and to and to just kind of be there and hold them through this, and and people can get through it. Well, I want to thank you for holding me through this, and 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 actually uh, standing up to to my obsession and denial, and and kind of just telling me the truth, saying, "Hey, get out of here. You can't come back. No more tests. I've got other people to treat. Get out of here and go take your Zoloft." So. <laughs> <laughs> that was a gift for me, and um, I'll never forget that. And I, I hope this is helpful for others, too, to hear from you, Dr. David Min. And thank you for your time so much. All right. Thank you. So nice seeing you. You, you too, great. as well. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller.
Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.